General Jim Mattis, 40 years in the U.S. Marine Corps. <clears throat> How do you keep improving as a leader to meet the demand of each role in your career? You all get promoted, you have different roles to play. How do you stay teachable as a leader? I think the most important thing here, uh, Joel, is that you have to assume you must keep improving. If you make that your decision, that you must improve, if you look at every week in the Marine Corps as your last week of peace, and you must be better at the end of this week as a warfighter, then you'll push yourself on your three-mile run down to 18 minutes, and you'll accept no excuses. You'll push yourself 21 pull-ups, and you'll accept no excuses. You'll push yourself to read the Commandant's reading list. You'll push yourself that when the things are going tough in the field, you keep your spirit up, and you're the man everyone can turn to, knowing that you don't give up. And you just keep improving every day with the assumption that if you're going to lead more Marines in the future as you get promoted, they expect you to be the physically toughest, the mentally sharpest, and the spiritually just the uh, most undiminished person, that nothing, not cold, not rain, not enemy situation, not frustrating rules can get you down. And you just maintain this body, mind, and spirit improvement at all times. You stay teachable most by reading books by reading what other people went through. I can't tell you the number of times I looked down at what was going on on the ground or I was engaged in a fight somewhere and I knew within a couple of minutes how I was gonna screw up the enemy. And I knew it because I'd done so much reading. I knew what I was going to do because I'd seen other similar situations in the reading. I knew how they'd been dealt with successfully or unsuccessfully. And so long as you continue along this line, as long as you remember, somebody on the other side is watching, hoping that you're not at the top of your game, that you're not reading, that you're not working out, that you're not strong spiritually, then they're going to think they've got you. You want to always be the toughest, the sharpest out there. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I'm on with my co-host, Tim Kozak, the creator of the Veterans Project. And we have a special guest on with us, former U.S. Army Ranger Paul Shari. And Paul just released a book called Army of None, Autonomous Weapons and the Future of War. Paul, how's it going? Uh, good. Thanks for having me on. Tim, you there? Yes, sir. I'm here, ready to rock and roll, John. Thanks for having me. All right. So, Paul, let's, you know, before we get into the book and the subject of autonomous warfare. Can we talk about your beginnings and, and what motivated you to join the Army, and then if we can go through some of your time in the military as well? Yeah. Um, you know, I joined uh, in um, in early 2001, so just before 9-11. Um, I think like a lot of folks, I was young, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, wanted to uh, have some new experiences. I was looking at graduating college. I had an engineering degree. And um, a lot of my friends are going into consulting and doing stuff like that. And it just seemed kind of empty to me. And I um, wanted to just you know, do something different, uh, travel overseas, you know, blow stuff up. I thought it'd be exciting. Um, so I listed with a ranger contract. 
and uh, walked through that whole thing, you know, basic training and airborne school. And what the time was RIP, the Ranger Indoctrination Program. And about midway through basic training, 9-11 happened. It changed a lot of things, obviously. Um, and, and the course for, of, uh, of the next almost 20 years now for, for lots of people in the military and veterans. And a great, great tour service there in the Army's uh, 3rd Ranger Battalion. Hey, and Paul, looking back, kind of, what were, what do you think were some of the formulative uh, things that might have scoped, changed your scope, and you know, made you decide to join the army in the first place? Do you, do you remember your childhood very well and growing up, and what that might have, you know, how that might have impacted your decision and, and the scope of what you were doing? You know, what's funny is uh, I wasn't, I know lots of people, you know, they sort of always wanted to be in the military. I wasn't that person. When I grew up, actually, this is going to sound crazy. I didn't join the Boy Scouts as a kid because I told my parents I thought they were too militant. Isn't that <laughs> like, who, does, who does it? The Boy Scouts. You sound and, like me, actually. <laughs> and I think, like, you know, I think it was all for me. Like, as a kid, all the merit badges, I was like, ah, I don't want all that. And I was, and parents, I was that kind of soldier, too. Like, a lot of the... I was not a very good spit and polish soldier. I once had my first sergeant, uh, I remember, or my platoon sergeant rather, ringing me out, asking me whether I'd shine my boots with a bar of chocolate that morning. Um, <laughs> so I, was, I was not good at those guys. There were other things I was all right at, but I wasn't good at those, like the, the dressing and, and color kind of stuff. But, um, but I don't, you know, I don't know. I just, I think as I got older, uh, you know, and a little bit of a, uh, antiness wanting to see the world. I was in, um, in college during the Kosovo war and i remember very clearly you know working you know doing studies and studying for finals and then watching the papers and and all these things that were happening overseas and here you had you know innocent civilians being run out of their homes and villages being destroyed by these uh, you know militant groups coming across the border from from serbia and the united states uh, after some some you know dithering and then launching the air campaign and there was a lot of talk of sending in ground troops and I just remember thinking to myself, like, what do I do with my life? Like, that seems meaningful here. You have people that are being threatened and attacked and, you know, America doing, doing good things out in the world. And I thought I, I'd much rather go uh, see the world and experience things up front. And, um, and so I just wanted a chance to go, you know, do that kind of thing and do something that really mattered, I guess. And the reason I asked that, you know, John and I, when we host the show, I think we find John and, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but. We find with so many of these guys that they make, you know, they have very different different decision making processes yeah. that lead them into the military, and that that's kind of powerful in and of itself. I mean, I'm I'm sure there are Medal of Honor recipients, you know, that were working at McDonald's before they joined, and were like, man, I need to do something, you know, bigger than this. I, I need not that there's anything wrong with working at McDonald's, but you know, they wanted to make a greater impact on the overall community and, and feel like they had a legacy to leave. And then you've got guys that join for college money that, you know, I'm sure have won, you know, been Medal of Honor recipients. So um, I just find it fascinating, the path that kind of leads. And John and I have had so many different guys, especially John, you know, being the host of the show. But we've had so many guys on with different paths into the military. And I find that kind of fascinating. So, Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, so Paul... Uh, you know, 9-11 kicks off, you know, as you, you said, you were going through RIP or that did you already graduate from RIP? I was in basic training okay, um, when 9-11 happened. And um, I remember very clearly volunteering for, for KP duty that evening so I could watch the news because, you know, you can't, you're basic training, you can't see TV or anything. And they just told us and, uh, you know, and, you know. You volunteer for KP duty. Somebody's gonna be happy to give it up for you, and uh, and getting a chance to watch the news and try to understand what was 
what was happening is clear, of course, at that time for anybody in the military that uh, it was going to mean something different. But what it meant, nobody really knew. Uh, signing up, I'll tell you, my, also my biggest concern when I signed up is that I would spend four years sitting on a base doing nothing. Um, and that turned out to not be the case, obviously. Um, very busy. And, and I ended up joining, went through uh, the Ranger Indoctrination Program, and then I joined 3rd Battalion right after uh, the jump into Kandahar, Objective Rhino. And so, you know, I sort of showed up at the unit right when they were coming back. And and we, I was the, you know, as things, as things go, right, you're the new guy. And everybody was like, you know, we've been to war. And now in retrospect, yeah. it's sort of like, well, you know, not really. I mean, there wasn't really a lot of, a lot of action there. But that was right. the only game in town at the time. And my biggest fear at the time was, it seems silly, of missing out. You know, that like, it seemed at that moment in the fall of 2001 that like the whole war might be over by Christmas because, right. you know, you had this, this lightning advance with the Northern Alliance across Afghanistan and the Taliban were on the run. And it was like, you know, wow, what if you, what if the, the whole war is over before you even get a chance to, to be there? Obviously that uh, turned out not to be the case. Right. Right. So now, you know, you go through a couple of years uh, in Ranger Battalion, and you have a couple of combat deployments as well? Yeah, I did three tours with Ranger Battalion. Um, you know, great experience. Started out uh, in the line in infantry as, a, you know, 11 Bravo, um, carrying, a, carrying a saw. Then moved up uh, after going through Ranger School, moved up to their sniper teams. And then um, in sort of relatively early, maybe the 2004 time frame, they created a battalion level recon units and uh, moved over to help stand up the recon team in third ranger battalion, um, which was just a great experience and, um, and really, really enjoyed it a lot. So the, the recon teams that's different from the, the ranger reconnaissance detachment or is that the same thing? Yeah, no, no, no. So like battalion level. So already is like regimental level. So battalion okay. level. So basically like relatively early on, it was like, you know, already was just, just tapped out. Um, and so, um, so they created, battalion level so they could have so the battalions could have some organic um recon capability for for their own you know hvt targeting process okay okay uh, that's pretty cool yeah it was so, great great time so now doing this type of work um you know from my understanding snipers you know it's not just about shooting right you have to have you know the ability to be the kind of the eyes and ears of the commanders uh and in some cases that means that you also have the capabilities to call in, you know, airstrikes, fast air, things like that. Is that where you began to have your interest in the topic of autonomous weapons or did that happen later on? No, that happened later on. But I remember very clearly the moment that that happened. Um, I, I got out in 2005 after finishing my first sort of four-year tour. And then um, about 15 months later was promptly recalled back in through the IRR. Uh, as, as they were doing at that time, this is, you know, during sort of the really the, the height of the wars um, when the, the army was really stretched very thin on people. And, you know, in the army's uh, infinite wisdom, I was reclassified to civil affairs, which is like the opposite of being a ranger. Um, <laughs> go figure. Right. Like and, uh, and and I did a tour in Iraq during the surge was there for a year doing civil affairs work. And I remember very clearly a moment pretty early in that in that deployment. So this is like 2007 time frame. When we come across an IED and we're waiting for the EOD teams to show up to clear it, and they roll up in their big MRAP, and I'm waiting to see the guy come out in a big bomb suit, right? And I'm like, oh, this will be really interesting. And out comes the little robot, 
And it was like the light bulb went on in my head. And I was like, oh, yeah, have the robot defuse the bomb. That's that that makes a lot of sense. Um, and and that really stuck with me that like, hey, you know, here's some technology that can can create some standoff from threats um, and, and can really, really help protect service members on the ground. And so when I ended up going back to the Pentagon later as a civilian policy analyst, that was an area that I uh, just began to work on heavily in robotics and, and autonomy and became something that just, as the technology advanced, ended up becoming a, b- a big focus of my work there. Right. So now that, you know, you're looking at this, you know, kind of in a larger picture, um, you know, your book just came out. I, I haven't read it yet, but I do have a copy of it. So, you know, I plan to read it. And from, you know, from what I can see, your approach is some, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you know, there are positives and negatives to this entire area of, you know, automating warfare, in your opinion. Yeah, the book is certainly not a polemic. It's really in tries. I try very hard in the book to be very balanced and present all of the different perspectives on it. Um, This topic of autonomous weapons, which is in a nutshell, is basically, you know, what happens when autonomy becomes so advanced that the weapons themselves are making decisions about who to kill. Um, And and we're not quite there yet, but there's a lot of things that are coming right up to that line um, in, in programs and development all around the globe. And I walk through the, some of those you know, programs that are in development in the book in detail. Um, and there's really quite a bit of detailed interviews with, um, with people in the U.S. defense establishment. Obviously, I have, I have better access there than, for example, in Russia or China. Um, and you know, people at DARPA, people at the Office of Naval Research, um, you know, leadership at the Pentagon on this topic, which is, is certainly a, you know, an increasingly hot topic. Um, and I try to present all the sides in, in the various legal and ethical and, and, and policy and other issues. I'd like it to be, you know, I really, the intent is the book to be a comprehensive overview of this issue so that if you want to understand it, this is the, the place to go and, and all of these different perspectives are captured there. Right. That, that's, that's pretty awesome. Um, you know, I, I wanted to ask, well, sorry for stepping on you there, John. Um, but, um, you know, for, for, for what you're doing within this field, you know, obviously, um, by the way, this segment is brought to you by Terminator Rise of the Machines. <laughs> totally, <laughs> totally right. But, um, uh, so, so when I, so when I think of these things, you know, I, I think of a couple of examples that I've seen lately, you know, um, and obviously somebody who's non-educated in this area, you know, I just, I served in the army and, you know, we didn't deal too much with autonomy. Obviously we had drones and, you know, those kinds of things flying up above, but, I saw on, you know, YouTube, I've seen these, a couple of videos, you know, from Boston Dynamics where, you know, one like dog robot opens the door for the other dog, you know, for the other robot, which like walks in. And right then and there, I watched it and I'm like, oh, we're over. Like humanity's done with for sure. Like that (laughs) robot just walked in through a door. Like that robot for sure could kill me. And then I saw the Boston Dynamics video of the robot doing a backflip. Oh, the yeah, that's, that a, that's yeah. a scary one. Yeah. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, cool. That's, that's cool. So humanity, robots one, humanity zero, and yeah. we're all going to be gone in the next 10 years. You know, like, and then the, 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 the drone, like, I think it was basically like a phantom, but one of those drones dropping, uh, you know, grenade or like some type of explosive on the top of Syrian troops, like ISIS was yeah, using those. Yeah, ISIS was using them. Yeah, yeah. 
Right. I, I see those examples. And I'm sorry, Paul, but it scares the crap out of me. <laughs> like the possibility. And I realize there's so many good capabilities that these, uh, you know, that these um, autonomous, you know, weapon systems, whatever they are, they have. But, you know, obviously the general public sees that as like, oh, for sure we're headed into Terminator territory here. You know, like this is bad. So how, so, you know, how do you govern that? How do you look out for those kinds of things? You know, what are the, what's the methodology, you know, for, for kind of, you know, making sure that stays in check? And is there a methodology for yeah, making sure that stays in check? It's, I mean, it's a tough, it's a very tough problem. I mean, some of the things people are doing are range from creepy to just downright terrifying. Um, the Boston Dynamics robots in particular seem to have an ability to, to just do some very unsettling things. I, I've seen, the, I mean, I've seen the videos that you described. I saw another one where they had a robot and a human was like, was like they were like tugging and trying to open. I think the robot's trying to open the door and the human's trying to shut it or something. And the robot's like uh -huh. fighting against the human. And I'm watching this and I'm like, is that a good idea? Is that really what we want to train the robots to do? Like, I'm just know. watching. I'm watching these videos and I'm literally saying to myself like. Um, isn't this like everything we've ever cautioned against in like 1980s and 1990s movies? Like, this is like the major fear going back many decades, you know, like that this kind of, that those videos would happen because you're watching it and you're going, uh, it's probably not even the best thing to show the public because, you know, there's so many comments about it and, and me watching it myself, I'm just thinking to myself, like, uh, have we gotten out of control already? Like, you know, that's kind of scary to me. Some of those, you know, videos are pretty frightening. Yeah, I mean, and the thing that's interesting to me is in science fiction, and you can pick, you know, you get Terminator and Cylons, and you get a whole variety of different, different um, kind of science fiction uh, examples to pick from. What we kind of see is this vision. Oh, Westworld just came out. I mean, that's that's another good one, where sort of the machines they rise up and then they become self-aware. And they turn on humans. And that's that's the storyline that science fiction tells. One of the things that I think is so interesting is what's actually happening is we're seeing increasingly advanced robots being born with a gun in their hands. I mean, armed robots, that's real today. It's called a predator drone. Um, what's mm -hmm. happening is that with each generation, they're getting smarter. They're already armed, though. They're already militarized and weaponized. Right. Uh, so what happens when a predator drone has as much autonomy as a self-driving car, um, which is coming. That's all coming. Terror. <laughs> well, I mean, so it's, you know, it's like, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to be like, I don't think that's, I don't think that's great. Um, yeah. One, one of the things I keep hearing from people now that the book is out, people are reading it, is people are like, this is really scary. Um, which was not like, my intent was not to necessarily frighten. I just sort of tried to walk through, these are the issues and this is the technology. Um, and these are some of the risks. I do talk about the risks. I think right. there's there's a couple levels of thinking about risk. One is the robot does something you don't want it to do. That's a that's a risk. And you don't need self-aware robots that decide to turn on you. Um, I, you know, anyone that's ever used a computer knows that computers can be a little buggy. Uh, they can have glitches. They can screw things up. And um, when this technology has you know has lethal capabilities, those consequences could be pretty bad. And right. And so that's one thing. And then there's a whole other basket of problems that are not the robot. It's about the person. And what are the people doing with these systems? What, are, what happens when these capabilities are in the hands of, you know, people like ISIS or right. Charles Assad or others who, 
you know, maybe they don't care about the rule of law. Maybe they're trying to to murder civilians. Right. And I, I think, you know, if we can kind of talk about like some of the rise of it and and then there's also with the rise of it, there's also the rise of the movement to try and stop that. Um, I, I guess within the government or, you know, within, you know, civilian organizations. Um, so can we talk about some of that? Yeah. Which one you want to? dive into first the the technology the the politics the international conversations where do you want to go yeah we talk about the like some of the rise of it and then you know at the same time people trying to stop that and and uh you know and and where that's coming from yeah so so one of the things i i did in in researching the book was i wanted to to start the story you know where does the story of this autonomy begin and i thought you know it does not it doesn't begin like in 2000 We've had we had drones in development before then. I figured it went back a couple decades, maybe like in the 1970s. And then I went back and realized that the first homing torpedo actually was in World War II, um, a German torpedo that could listen to Allied ships and zero in on them. And there were problems with that. Um, it sunk two U-boats actually when it turned back on the boat that launched it. And so the Germans had to develop a tactic of diving their submarines immediately after launching this weapon. Because it, it was so uncontrollable. Um, but then I actually realized the story started even before then. And, and you had things like machine guns before that. And really the, the first, the, I start the story of the book in the Civil War with the Gatling gun. As to me, the first thing that begins to bring in this process of automation and mechanization in shortening human involvement in killing and war. And and the thing that was fascinating to me about the, the Gatling gun, and this is one of the fun things about researching the book, is you stumble across some of these facts that that jump out at you and are so interesting, was the inventor Richard Gatling. He he was an industrialist inventor, you know, had done other things and invented uh, farming implements. Was was a machinist, and here he is he's in the Civil War, and he's watching all of these young men come back killed and wounded from the war, and he begins to think to himself, you know, we have all this progress. In the industrial age, and and is there some way that I can use this machinery to make war more humane and reduce human suffering? And so he comes up with this idea that what if we needed fewer soldiers on the battlefield? What if I could automate a lot of these actions? So he invents the Gatling gun, which was as a predecessor of the machine gun. It requires a hand to crank it, but it's got six barrels and it spins around and um, and the firing process happens automatically. So it, it just loads the bullets and then, and then fires them. And by using the Gatling gun, four soldiers could do the work of 100. So huge explosion in combat effectiveness and lethality. But of course, the outcome isn't fewer casualties. It's massively more. Right. When we see that evolve to the Maxim gun, which gives the British a tremendous advantage in colonial wars in Africa, and then you get to World War One when both sides have this weapon. And that's, and that's one of the things that's really interesting to me is that sometimes you have these technologies, and they look great when you're the first one to get it. Um, and, and the British used to say, you know, we have the Maxim gun. Like, that's this huge advantage that they had over those who didn't. But then you get to the battlefields of, of Verdun, and, and now you have – uh, people are using these things against you, and you get horrific trench warfare in World War One, and a generation of, of British men killed on those battlefields. And and the other thing that strikes me is, so here you have this person who, you know, in, his intent is good, but can't really foresee what 
effects this brings to the battlefield and just orders of magnitude more suffering. But also you have the, the political leadership at the time fails to understand how this technology changes war in a deeply profound way. And to all these European countries go to war in World War One, and so it's not just machine guns, it's other new technologies too, but but they they change war in a way that the political and military leadership does not comprehend. And if they did, they probably would have found other ways to resolve things. It would not have certainly rushed so easily into that war. Um, and I think that's a that's an important cautionary tale for the kinds of, of technological change we're seeing today. Paul, I wanted to kind of, I don't want to interrupt at all, but I want to kind of get to that point because World War One, obviously, you know, I, I go back with the Veterans Project and I cover guys from World War Two going all the way, you know, back, but obviously none of our World War One veterans are around. But I think that's one of the most fa- fascinating dynamics of what you're speaking of was we're still in this age where we're using like horse and cart, right? But then all of a sudden you're talking about, you know, a, a a weapon without discretion, you know, a weapon that really had incredible capabilities that we're now using today in a different format, but something that was far past its age, right? So something that neither side was really ready for. So I think you could almost make the argument that we were worse off on both sides for having, you know, um, having the ability to have that weapon on the battlefield. Oh, I think there's no question. There's no question that um, once you got to the world where, where both sides had machine guns or, or as also came to the battlefield in World War I, poison gas, um, it made war far more horrific um, and the level of destruction far worse than, than previously and, um, and to no gain, right? Like, like militaries pursued these technologies. Poison gas is a great example of this. I talk about this in the book where uh, the French did, did some early experiments the Germans had heard about the French experiments. The French had actually first used it um, on the front, but very ineffectively. It didn't, didn't work. And, and the Germans were so worried about the French getting ahead in what they thought might be this, this game-changing new technology that no one had really seen before that they said, we've got to get this first. And, yeah. and so they rush it into the battlefield. And here you have, again, people overestimate the effectiveness, the degree to which it's going to be this game changer that's going to break the front and they can get ahead and they can win the war quickly. And they underestimate the degree to which it just makes war so much more horrific. Um, and I think that's that's another example where when I look at some of the emerging technologies today, whether it's in artificial intelligence, autonomy, cyber weapons, uh, synthetic biology, or some other things people are doing are just, are just really frightening – I think, I think it's an important cautionary tale to think about. Um, here are past examples where people overestimated the value and, and underestimated how quickly others would get a hold of it and the horror that it would bring, and, and we would do wise to, to avoid trying to do the same. And I don't want to hold you on that point for too long, but John, I think this is a really interesting position because nowadays, obviously— you know, I, I live in San Antonio, Texas, right by, you know, Brook Army Medical Center, which is now SAMC. But, um, you know, they've made huge advancements in those medical fields. But it, uh, one of the problems it looks like with World War One, um, you know, those those accompanying technologies in the medical fields hadn't really caught up, you know, so the, we weren't really prepared to handle triage and, and medical care in that kind of a, in that kind of a format, you know, where guys are getting torn up by weapons we hadn't seen before. The medical fields hadn't really caught up. 
Right. And I think, you know, as you know, the points that Paul just made and, and you're talking about, and since we've seen it, you know, with the, uh, the start of the Gatling gun and then further through these more recent wars up until now is that the speed of war rushes some of these advancements in, in medical and, um, weaponry, you know, the Obama, the Obama administration favored, uh, using drone strikes in Pakistan, for example, uh, instead, of, instead of sending in like commando raids to try and get, you know, a high value target or, or something like that. And, um, there are pluses and negatives to it. So, uh, Paul, we can talk about some of the legal and ethical issues surrounding some of the autonomous weapons. Yeah. So let's, let's dive into that. When we look at weapons today, um, starting really with this, this German torpedo, the Ren torpedo in World War II, as the first weapon that really had the ability to do some sensing on its own, because um, machine guns can't do that. They can't aim themselves, obviously. Um, the Ren torpedo was the first of this class of homing munitions that it's, it's released, it's aimed at a target, but now it has a sensor on board, it can sense the target, and it has some internal decision-making processes. It can make some kind of decision, in that case, just to kind of turn left or turn right, to zoom in on the target. And, and now you know, th- that class of weapon is widely used by militaries around the globe today for targeting radars and ships and, and air-to-air missiles against aircraft and, and other things. So, so that's one way that autonomy is used. And, um, and many of those things are, are fire-and-forget weapons. You let go of it, it's not coming back, which is not in and of itself a new invention. I mean, you know, a, a bow and arrow, that's fire-and-forget. Um, what's different is that now you have a little bit of intelligence inside the weapon itself. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't say those things are making their own decisions about what to attack because the human is still launching them at something. The human says, well, I know that there's you know, a ship here or a submarine or, or an aircraft and I'm going to launch this weapon. Maybe I can't control it once it's released, but I'm going to launch it at this, at this target. There's another, so that's widely used. There's another class of weapon that um, in our research here at the Center for a New American Security, we found at least 30 countries have that I'm going to call human supervised autonomous weapons. So what does that mean? So this is something that um, it's an autonomous weapon. It can make its own decisions about what to attack based on human programming, but it's human supervised. A human supervises its operation. Examples would be the Aegis combat system on Navy ships. The Patriot air and missile defense system has a mode, an automatic mode that does this, or active protection systems on ground vehicles that are used to shoot down incoming uh, r- rockets and, and anti-tank missiles that Russia and Israel have deployed um, and the U.S. Army is, is playing catch-up on. And so we found 30 countries have weapons kind of fall into this category, and they're used for defensive purposes, defending ships or ground vehicles or, or land bases, where the speed of incoming attacks might overwhelm the human sitting at the console. So just like playing uh, Missile Command on, on old Atari games, you might have so many threats coming in that the human just reaches a saturation point and the human can't possibly respond and so most of the time these weapons are operated in a, in a sort of human in the loop fashion the human the, the, the automation might queue up the target but the human's got to push a button to say okay but they do have sort of a, a you know wartime mode an automatic mode that they can be turned to somewhat confusingly 
the Aegis combat system, their auto mode has a human in the loop, and the full auto mode is called auto special. I don't know. I didn't name these things. But, um, but these things have a, have, a, have a full auto mode where you can turn it, and then, boom, it's going to take down targets. But humans are still supervising them, and, and they're all defensive. And the humans are physically located there, which is so critical when you think about managing risk. Because we have had accidents. Um, there were two instances in 2003 where the Patriot uh, air defense system shot down two friendly aircraft during the opening phases of the Iraq war. And what's actually interesting is humans were, were in the loop for those instances. Humans pushed the button. So having a human there is not necessarily always a failsafe. Um, but, but at least if there are accidents in all these cases, humans have physical access. And so usually there are actually keys or switches or something that they can – a human can fold, actually physically disable the system or to like take away the, the electricity to the firing circuits. Um, and when researching the book – I went down to the, the Navy's uh, training center for his Aegis operators, and they showed me this. It showed me the, the fire inhibit switch, the fizz key that they have uh, that actually disables this, this firing circuits. Um, the, the real question is going forward, what happens when we see that level of autonomy in an offensive context? So now you've got some, some drone where the human's not physically co-located, and it's operating forward into contested areas. Um, and we're seeing, you know, many countries are building next generation stealth drones that are intended to operate in contested areas inside enemy airspace where their communications might be jammed. Uh, the U.S. is building systems like this, as is the United Kingdom, France, uh, Russia, China and Israel. They all have either acknowledged or, or you know, reported systems uh, that are in development. So you've got this drone and it's out there and now your enemy jams your communications link. So what do you want it to do? Is it going to come home? Is it going to just do surveillance? You know, does it strike pre-planned fixed targets, which is kind of what a cruise missile does? If it comes across targets of opportunity, new targets, um, maybe it's a mobile missile launcher that you're trying to track and, and destroy in a country like, say, North Korea. Um, those might be really high-value targets. Maybe you say, I want to take it out. Are you going to allow that? You're going to delegate that authority to the machine? Or what about self-defense? I mean, these are not going to be cheap systems. Some of them might be. Um, there might be expendable robots, but some of them might be costly. Are you going to allow it to fire back if someone shoots at it? These are not hypothetical. These are real questions that militaries will have to address in the coming years as they begin to field these um, combat-oriented robotic systems for these high-end environments. And so that's kind of the, the, the question the book grapples with, because countries have been very opaque about what they're doing. The United States has a policy on this. Um, I actually was involved in this when I worked at the Pentagon. I led the, the working group inside the Defense Department that drafted this policy. And that's public. It's out there. People can check it out. It's um, uh, Defense Department Directive 3000.09. And so it's on the DOD's website publicly. You can read it. But other countries have been very, very opaque. Russia has said some statements um, by senior Russian generals that they want to build fully roboticized units in the future that are capable of independent operations. But what that means is, you know, it's kind of fuzzy. Uh, China has been even more opaque. They recently made some statements at United Nations meetings um, just a few weeks ago, but, um, but they're a little bit incoherent um, and confusing and people are trying to figure out what exactly the Chinese are talking about. Um, so, so this is kind of the question is, as we go down this path in this technology, what are countries going to be willing to do? 
And I think that's fascinating from the perspective, you know, all of it's fascinating, but, you know, we talk about legal and ethical obligations, you know, where uh, humans involved, you kind of have this rights and responsibilities where, you know, you, you, you realize who's, a, who's to blame um, at some level, you know, but with those responsibilities on the legal side, who gets punished if a fully independent, you know, autonomous drone goes off and does something right. that we don't want it to. Like, where does the punishment phase come in for that? Whereas with a human at least involved in the process, we can kind of go back and go, well, you know, uh, Lieutenant Jackson caused this issue, you know. Um, but on, on that level, it's just it's interesting to me when you develop like these fully autonomous beings or, or, or weapon systems, who gets to blame if something goes wrong? Yeah, this, this comes up a lot, this concern about um, who do we hold accountable if there's some accident and a robot kills someone? And the answer may sometimes be no one. And I think that that can be very unsatisfactory. Right, well, that's, right. that's wrong. And you have some people saying, well, we should ban these weapons because there's going to be an accountability gap. Um, you know, and I think it's, it's, a, fair, it's a fair concern. Um, you could have situations where let's imagine – you know, someone launches this weapon and it goes on and does something unexpected. It blows up a hospital. Okay. So who are you going to blame? So if you talk to the person and you say, did you know it was going to blow up the hospital and kill the civilians? If they say, yeah, oh yeah, I knew that. That was my intention. Well, then it's actually really easy that you committed a war crime. You intentionally targeted civilians. Um, or, or maybe, maybe, you know, you didn't properly consider proportionality and precautions in attack, which are legal concerns. Maybe it wasn't intentional, but you, you knew it was likely to happen. You just didn't care. Um, the laws of war tell you you can't do things like that. The real problem is when it's an accident and the person says, I had no idea. Um, and maybe the answer is that they, they shouldn't, they couldn't have known. Maybe, um, the answer is they weren't trained properly. Or maybe sometimes, you know, it might be something that we've never uncovered before. It never came up in testing. Or, hey, this is something new in the environment that we just never experienced before. Or the enemy maybe did something clever. When we look at the, the Patriot fratricides in 2003, a lot of those factors actually came into play. Um, the fascinating thing about those instances was a human pushed the button in both cases. But you know who was held accountable? Nobody. At the end of the day, nobody, there was a recommendation to, to sanctions of people that didn't happen. And when they looked at this, they basically said, look, there were some, in some case, in one case, there were some incidences in, um, that were identified in, in testing and never were told to the operators. In another case, in the second fratricide, it looks like there was just a totally unexpected situation that had, had really not been experienced before uh, until they came into combat. Combat, of course, you know, creates different conditions in training, different novel situations. And, um, and so you do have these situations where no one is held accountable. What you don't want to do is have a situation where people don't care and they don't believe that they're responsible. And one of the things that, that came out of the, the after action investigation into the Patriot fratricides that I think was really deeply troubling was um, the operators told investigators that their perception was that if they overruled the automation, the automation recommended that you shoot on something, which is what happened, um, and they overruled it, and then someone was killed, that they'd be in more trouble than if they just trusted the automation and there was a fratricide. And right. so, right? So that's really alarming that here there was like a, we know there's this condition called automation bias, where people can tend to overtrust an automation. But here actually a culture that supported that, 
that encouraged that, that, that sort of led people to give away their human judgment. Um, and so that tells me that it's not just about the automation itself and what you build on the technology, but we've got to think about the training, we've got to think about the doctrine, and we've got to think about the culture that supports all that um, if we really want humans to remain in control and be exercising judgment. Right. And the other thing is, you know, who wants to grab back responsibility for that, right? Like, right. <laughs> you know, like who wants to say, oh, actually, well, I overrode the automation because I thought I had a better idea. I mean, who trusts? It's that's what you're talking about with the culture, I believe, is like we trust these automation sources to be pro to be right. Um, and so very often it's like there's no way I'm smarter than a machine. So even with all my levels of expertise and all my learning, if I take this back and this responsibility, I could be responsible for a war crime. Yeah, so the thing that's really hard is that um, – so we, we, we have this – our brain is wired to create mental models of other people, how other people work. That's how we're social animals. That's how we get through life. We're able to interact with others. It's, we're really good at creating this sort of internal models for how other people think. And it's quite natural for people to apply those, those same, that same mental process to non-human objects. We do it to pets. People talk about their, you know, their, their dogs as, as being like people, and you sort of, oh, the dog wants this or that. Um, and, and people do it to machines as well. There's like an astonishing number of people, I talk about this in the book, who name their Roomba. Um, and, and so we tend to anthropomorphize these machines. The problem with that is the machines don't think like us. Um, our model for artificial intelligence, you go to science fiction and the model for artificial intelligence is smart, like a human, right? That's what happens to, to hell and to Skynet and to, you know, an iRobot. And that's what happens in Westworld is these machines in Cylons, they, they sort of become like humans. We have this model that we're somehow the pinnacle of intelligence. What right. we're actually fine when we build these machine intelligences is they're really, they're just radically different than humans. They think incredibly differently. They're almost, I've had some people suggest that, that AI should stand for alien intelligence because they think very differently. And what, one of the things that's, I think, really fundamental to understand is that right now we're very good at building what people call narrow artificial intelligence. We can build machines that can perform very narrow tasks extremely well. So they can play chess, they can play Go, they can play video games. They could play Jeopardy. They, they're getting better at driving cars. Um, and in some driving environments, they may, they may already be better than people under the right conditions. Um, and, and what happens is, is for humans, we see that threshold. We see, oh, they're, and we extrapolate that to everything. We say, oh, they're better than humans. What we don't realize is that the machine intelligence is very brittle. So when the context for their use changes, when they step outside sort of the frame of their design or their programming, these machines can turn dumb in an instant. Um, one interesting example of this is recently the AI research company DeepMind programmed um, this machine called AlphaGo to play the game of Go, the Chinese strategy game. It's sort of like, a, like an Eastern version of chess, to play this better than humans, beat the top human competitors in the world. Um, so it is superhuman levels of performance. Now, reportedly, that original version, if you change the size of the board, moving from you know, 21 spaces to 19 spaces or something like that, if you just change by the, slightly the size of the board, the machine's performance would drop off significantly because it wasn't the data it was trained on. You change the environment just a little bit. 
Where a sumo would have no problem with that. That's not gonna that's gonna throw off a go master. And and so the real challenge is is training people to understand. Look, you may be sitting behind the wheel of an automobile, and in some setting it's, it's amazing, and you should trust it. But then there's this other setting um, that all of a sudden it's going to do something terrible, like drive into a semi truck or a concrete barrier or a pedestrian, all of which we have seen resulting in fatalities. And it's very hard to ask people to say, trust the machine, trust the machine, do nothing 99% of the time. And then the 1% of the time when it's going to fail, you need to be able to leap into action at a moment's notice, you know, grab the wheel of the steering wheel when you're going on the highway or, um, you know, trust the automation and all of these missiles that are coming in to shoot on them. But this one time you got to jump in and in a split second, hit the veto button. That's not from a human factor standpoint. It's not realistic to expect people to do that. And yet time and again, that's actually what we ask people to do. So do you think because of the, the way that a lot of artificial intelligence is set up, the way they process information and think, do you think because of that, a weapon like a, a drone that could, uh, you know, factor in or or vector in targets on its own and, and decide, oh, I'm going to shoot this and I'm not going to shoot that. Do you think that's where, you know, if something changes in that environment, that's where the, the accidents will come into play? That could be one factor, is that um, the environment changes in some way that we hadn't anticipated. Um, another risk is that the enemy does something. I mean, we're in a competitive environment in war. And, um, and the enemy is going to be actively looking for ways to hack and spoof and manipulate our systems. And, you know, they're going to have some subset of programming, some rules they have to follow. And anytime that you're hemmed in with rigid rules in that kind of competitive environment, I think it's a huge limitation. Um, and, and cause there'd always be some way to exploit a weakness in those kinds of rules. Humans are very flexible and adaptable and we could give humans you know, commander's intent, you give them broad guidance, and then they can adapt on the battlefield. And we tell humans, we would totally understand this for humans. We don't expect people to go into combat and just rote do exactly what you did in training. We know that that's probably terrible and will get you killed. We expect people like training as a foundation, but then you've got to be flexible and adaptable. And we say things like, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. But the machine is not going to be able to adapt and that's, it doesn't mean we can't use the technology, but it's a limitation we have to be aware of, and we have to pair it with human judgment so that humans are able to, to be that, that engine of flexibility and adaptability and innovation. So now let's, let's talk about how different nations can trust one another in environments where there are autonomous weapons. And and how can they work together to avoid accidents? I mean, I know that's difficult enough. Uh, like, for example, right now you have in Syria, you have different nations, um, you know, running, you know, airstrikes in different parts. And, you know, you have to coordinate and make sure, you know, there's no Russians in this part or there's no Americans. So that's difficult enough. How do nations do that in a, in a place where the weapons are autonomous? Yeah, it's... It's a, it is a tough problem. Um, uh, you know, there, there's, there, so you've got basically a community of people that have called for a ban on autonomous weapons. Um, there's maybe 50 or so, 50 plus NGOs, non-governmental organizations. We've had several thousand AI researchers and scientists sign now a series of different open letters kind of calling for this. So there's sort of this, this civil society movement. And you've got a handful of countries 
Um, none of them leading military powers, none of them major robotics companies. Um, frankly, most of them not really standouts for, for human rights either. Um, but, but, but maybe about two dozen countries or so that have said they, they also support a ban. Um, a lot of the conversation revolves around, you know, to ban or not to ban. I actually think that to some extent that's putting the cart before the horse. We should talk about how do we want to use the technology first? Um, but there's a lot of debate about this. And when you look at the historical record of feasibility, it's really a mixed bag. And so you had some people saying weapons bans don't work. The Pope tried to ban the crossbow in the 12th century, and that didn't work, uh, which, is, which is definitely true. Um, there were two attempted bans on the crossbow um, in the Middle Ages, and there's no evidence that they slow down the spread of the crossbow across medieval Europe like one slightest bit, one iota. Um, and then there were a whole host of attempts in the early 20th century to ban or regulate technologies like submarines or air-delivered weapons or poison gas, and they really did not do very well either. Um, and on the other, on the flip side, you have you have other groups saying, "Well, look, we've got bans on landmines and cluster munitions and blinding lasers, and um, you know, bans on chemical and biological weapons that are." that are largely adhered to um, by most countries. Obviously, we've got people like Bashar al-Assad who are violating them right now in Syria. So some of it depends upon kind of what your margin of success is, right? Um, but it's a really hotly contested topic. One of the things I dig into in the book is, and I, th I think it's the first time this has been done really comprehensively. Um, there are some other scholars, uh, Rebecca Krutoff at Yale, uh, Sean Welsh, who, who dug into this and, and looking at historical bands, have come up with uh, sort of criteria for what succeeds and not. And not. Um, but I put together a table of everything I could find, uh, dating back all the way to, to ancient India and to, to prohibitions um, in ancient Indian texts on poison and barbed arrows. And I identify kind of a couple of factors that seem to make a difference for whether states are actually able to cooperate to regulate and limit weapons in warfare, which is obviously intrinsically really challenging because you're at war, you're killing each other. And so, you know, the gloves are off at that point in time. Right. Um, and yet we do have examples of restraint. Um, there, there are a host of Cold War era arms control treaties um, that, that were passed between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, regulating nuclear weapons, prohibiting putting nuclear weapons in space, on the seabed, um, limiting anti-ballistic missile uh, systems, limiting uh, intermediate-range nuclear forces. We've seen in, in the post-Cold War era, some of these has kind of started to unravel. U.S. pulled out of the anti-ballistic missile treaty. Russia has now, uh, is now violating and cheating on the intermediate-range nuclear forces treaty. But, but there are some examples here. The, uh, using the weapon, the environment as a weapon, uh, is, is banned under law, and people have adhered to that, the Environmental Modification Treaty. So there are some, some successful restraint. The biggest one, uh, the most successful one, is really the case of poison gas in World War II. And I think it highlights a lot of the conditions that, that make restraint successful. Well, here you had poison gas used by all sides in World War I. And then you get to World War II, so not long after. And everyone has it. All of the major powers have stockpiled tens of thousands of, um, of tons of gas. And they don't actually use it on each other. Now, you see it used against civilians in the Holocaust, of course. You see it, um, uh, Japan uses it against uh, China. Um, they don't have, China doesn't have poison gas. But you don't see the major powers use it against each other. So why? In the midst of an unrestrained war 
that is, you know, if we're looking for unconditional surrender, why do people not turn to this tool that's readily in their arsenal? I think there's a couple of conditions at play. One is that um, the balance between the military usefulness of the weapon and the horribleness of it um, doesn't really favor using it very much. So, you know, against troops that have chemical gear, poison gas is not, it's not decisive. Um, sometimes people say it's useless. I think that's that's not true at all. Um, obviously, um, um, you know, U- U.S. troops have thought about uh, poison gas being used against them, particularly during the the Iraq invasion. Right. Um, I, there were actually some 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 chlorine gas attacks by uh, insurgents midway through the Iraq War. I was hit with one of them in. Um, in Diyala province in Iraq, and uh, it turned out to be not very significant. Uh, there was a lot of wind that day, and it, it, it didn't didn't cause a lot of damage. But but people thought about this. Um, but it's not it's not really decisive in the way that, for example, like nuclear weapons are. Right? If Saddam had used chemical weapons, that would not have changed the outcome of the Gulf War or or, or the Iraq invasion in two thousand three. Right. Um, and, and, and the horribleness of them is really pretty awful. They're perceived as really terrible. But then I think reciprocity is really key. When you look at this, the, whether or not something is banned by treaty is not particularly significant. Countries violate treaties, particularly in wartime. Right. And there are a few examples of restraint um, without treaties, actually, um, although they're, they're not as common. The main function of a legally binding treaty is sort of a focal point for cooperation. It's, every, it's sort of a piece of paper that everybody can agree on we agree that this is a significant line, that crossing this line is meaningful. If you start to use poison gas, we both agree, like, that's a, that's a big deal. Um, but the really the really thing that drives restraint is reciprocity, that everybody knows, look, if I were to use poison gas, you're going to use it against me. Right. And now it's escalated to a new, more horrible dimension of war. Um, the challenge is... is um, when the, when the boundary between use and non-use is slippery, it's kind of a slippery slope, then restraint gets much harder. So the line between using poison gas and not using it is like super clear. There's not a lot of ambiguity there. There's no halfway measures. Um, one place where that was not the case is in World War II at the outset of the war, all of the countries desired restraint in aerial bombing against cities, against civilian populated cities. And actually, at the outset of the war, they didn't start that way. And in fact, Germany in particular, um, Hitler issued, I mean, like, look, not a good dude, right? Not caring about civilians, but Hitler issued an order to the Luftwaffe saying, you are not permitted to launch what they call terror bombing raids against um, British cities. Um, aerial bombardment in, in, in the Luftwaffe at the start of the war was only permitted against British military targets because the Germans because they care, because they feared the British Air Force and they feared retaliation in kind and what it could do to them. Um, And that restraint actually held until early in the war, a German bomber strayed in the middle of the night and bombed central London by mistake. Because look, military and civilian targets are relatively close to each other. And where are you going to put industrial facilities? They're going to be nearby cities. And and so in retaliation, uh, Churchill ordered the bomb of Berlin, and in response, the next day, Hitler launched the London Blitz, and the gloves came off. So for autonomous weapons, the real challenge is, um, one, the country's desire restraint. What we're hearing right now out of, out of most of the great powers is nothing to see here, full speed ahead. Um, they, there's no even desire for restraint. It's not clear how much that's genuine or that's driven by the politics of 
they, they don't want to sort of like give an inch to some of the NGOs, right? They don't want to give ground publicly. Um, but that's what you're hearing. Um, but also, even if they did, like, how do you get to the place where you could trust each other? And I just think that's, that's, that's intrinsically extremely difficult with this kind of technology when it's all in the software. Um, you can't verify it. Um, you can't tell from a distance if a weapon is autonomous or not. They look the same, whether there's a human in a loop. It's all in the software. And honestly, I don't know that you could even tell if someone used it. So let's say some drone goes out there and it blows up a target. How would you know whether a human authorized that? Um, right. I don't know that you would. And I think all of that makes restraint very, very challenging. Right. And I think some of those, some of the points you talked about where, you know, in the beginning, Hitler didn't want uh, the German Air Force to bomb civilian cities, you know, in fear of retaliation. I think that's what kind of stopped the world from uh, Russia and, and uh, United States from going to nuclear war was a, a concept that was coined uh, MAD for mutually assured destruction. So basically, if I nuke you, you're going to nuke me and we're just going to launch nukes at each other until the world doesn't exist anymore. And um, obviously with like chemical weapons, it's, it's probably not the destruction wouldn't be as bad, but I think it's kind of a similar concept. But um, kind of on that topic, just talking about like different ways that, you know, people can be killed in, in warfare. Uh, on the flip side, there's also, I've you know, I've read different things and I've heard I've heard guys or, or read about guys saying things like, well, if we're if we're in war and I'm trying to kill you anyway, you know, what difference does it make how I kill you? Yeah, I think it's a great question. So sometimes this comes up, there's this this moral and ethical argument. I mean, look, to be clear, there's nothing in the laws of war that says a human has to make these targeting decisions. That's just that's it's crystal clear. Some people might argue, well, that's because, you know, it was it was implicit in the past. You didn't have to say it. But I don't I don't think that's valid. I think like like the, the laws of war generally dictate the effects on the battlefield and they're neutral to the decision making process. Um, but people have had these for moral and ethical arguments that are outside the law. But they say, look, it's just it it's wrong. It's wrong. And, I, and it's not just, you know, coming from from, um, you know, people that maybe aren't military folks that maybe are you know worried about humanitarian concerns. I hear this a lot of times from people in uniform. I mean, not everyone. But I do. I hear. I hear people in uniform say, "Look, it's wrong to let a machine make these decisions. Like humans have to do this." Um, I think the way that this is articulated sometimes, when it's victim-centered, doesn't resonate with me personally, at least. I mean, some people it does. I hear them say, "Like, oh, I get that." But sometimes I hear people say, "Like, oh, it's you know, it's wrong, you know, to be killed by a robot." Um, and I'm like, "Well, I mean, if you're dead, like, what?" To me personally, like, how does it matter? I mean, you, how do you even like? And sometimes people will say things that would violate human dignity. And I'm just like, what's dignified about being mowed down by a machine gun or drowning in a sinking ship or blown up by a bomb or a flechette weapon or something else? Like, there's a lot of awful ways to die in war. Um, and I don't actually see any historical evidence or any precedent in the law for militaries giving the enemy the opportunity to die a, quote, dignified death. Um, right. obviously lots of, like lots of warrior cultures care about themselves dying honorably because hugely important to samurai culture. Right. Um, and the Bushido and like the Bushido talks about not dying like a dog. Um, so, so your personal honor is important, but there's not a lot of like, a lot of war is just, it's, it's pretty brutal. Um, right. and I don't, I don't think, you know, we shouldn't 
sort of sugarcoat that and try to romanticize what happens when we think about some of these new technologies. We need to confront war as it is. I think the thing that does have a little bit of resonance with me that makes sense is when you think about this perspective of the user and you say, well, how does this change the relationship of the military professional with the use of violence? I think that is an interesting question to ask, which is to say that if we were in a world where machines did all the killing and humans, you know, push the button, but they didn't feel any moral responsibility for what happened. And they, they got done and, and, you know, people would you know, say, oh, like, did you kill anybody today? And they're like, ah, no, I didn't do anything. The robot did it all. Right? I just pushed the button. I think it's valid asking what the effects of that would be. Um, certainly. That, yeah. What's that? No, I, I said I think it certainly is, yeah. Right? Like, so one, you know, could it lead to, to less restraint and more killing and war? I think that's possible. Could it lead to wars being more violent? It's possible. Now, there is an argument for that, frankly, right? There's the sort of the, the General Sherman approach to war that says, like, war is terrible and we might as well just get it over with, right? right. So that's – and I, I, I certainly give credence to that in, in the book and talk through that. But I think it's worth asking this question of, you know, if no one slept uneasy at night about the horrors of war, would that make us more flippant about going to war? Would that lead to more wars? Would it lead to wars being more brutal? Would that lead to, to what does it say about us right. um, as a society if we just didn't care? Now, the, the, the really ch- sort of tragic and, and, uh, and interesting thing about this is it basically says that there's value in people suffering from things like moral injury and post-combat stress, which is obviously horrible, right? That we have we have veterans that, that suffer horrible um, psychological injuries and, and deal with awful trauma afterwards. Um, and I think it is it is deeply unfair and terrible that that what happens is is when we go to war as a nation, we ask a very tiny subset of society, in particular um, young people, to bear these moral burdens for the country as a whole. Um, and and it's and it's tragic, but it does it does sort of and there's both edges to this. And I, I don't you know I try to kind of in the book give give credence to both, which is on the one hand you could say hey that's better if we could offload all of that stuff to machines and then no one has to suffer those things. On the other hand, you might say maybe it's better that that someone appreciates the horrors of war. Uh, Sherman also talks about you know the listening to the the cries of the wounded and acknowledging that war is hell. Um, and that there maybe is some value in us keeping our humanity and, and knowing, uh, how horrible it, it is. And I think that's, I don't have the answer, but I think it's an interesting question worth, worth thinking yeah. about. Yeah, I, I think it is. And I think, you know, as you're talking about it, what I, what I, what kind of came to my mind was, um, you know, with the, the advancements and like social media and everyone being connected, you have like a disconnect with things that people are willing to say online, right? Let's say to somebody, you know, on Twitter or something like that. And it kind of dehumanizes the experience because people are willing to say whatever they want to say because they're not in person. So there's no, there's almost no consequences in, in some ways um, for some people and what they might say to somebody as, you know, however horrible it might be. But then, you know, kind of as it relates to what we're talking about, it just makes you think like, you know, the, these war fighters who are going to war and experiencing, you know, the horrors of combat and losing their friends and, and things like that, 
you know, all of that is part of the sacrifice that they make. You know, they're sacrificing their bodies. They're sacrificing some of their, you know, their mental. And, and you know, as you said, it is horrible, but it keeps a human aspect to it. Um, I know a, a couple of years ago, there was some contention over uh, drone operators receiving battlefield uh, awards, you know, for, you know, whatever they kill the high value target or something like that. But I, I think it's important to not completely dehumanize warfare. You know, the last episode that we did, Tim was on with me, and we had a guy who was a, a special missions guy who was on the ground in Mogadishu. And Tim, he was talking about the first time he, he killed somebody. And then Tim, you know, asked him a, a question. And, you know, it's a very personal and deep question. You know, how would you feel about it? Um, but, you know, once you, you kind of automate those processes, then those emotions get taken out of it. But even if you do automate the process of war, you're not going to be able to take away the humanity and, and the people who are killed and the people who are suffering. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I actually like that you brought up the example of social media because I think that's totally on the ball. I mean, here's an example of this technology that has this unintended side effect of, I mean, I'm just amazed by this. So get on the subway and everyone's like super polite, like, oh, excuse me, excuse me, stay out of the way, right? And then everybody's like, they're like, they're all on their phones and they're like just bombing each other on Twitter and yeah. like, and right, like, what's wrong with people? And people say these things all the time that you would never do in person because you can right. see the effect on other humans. And so there's no, I mean, so many listeners may be familiar with um, Dave Grossman's, I think, wonderful book on killing. Yeah. Like, into the psychology of, of killing. And, and he talks about this issue of psychological distance and how people have a natural human reaction. He argues all, all mammals do um, against, or all animals against killing their own species. And it's not, and, but, but that as you increase psychological distance from sort of identifying this person as a human, right? right? As you move from seeing them face to face to seeing them from far away, you know, and they're just a silhouette to maybe bombing them from the air, like right. those barriers start to go down. And I think it's totally valuable to start to think about how does automation become a moral buffer? Now, obviously in the case of Grossman equates all of this with physical distance because he's really thinking in like a pre-digital kind of era before things like drones. Right. Obviously, it's really psychological distance. And you can see through things like um, how drone operators talk about some of the, the psychological stress of that role, which is which is intense, that you're going to have people on the other side of the globe, but they can see what's happening. It's very real. Um, but I think it's worth asking as you add in automation, does it change it? I think it's very possible. And it's just, I just think it's, um, I just think it's interesting because I don't want to be flipped either about the fact that you know, these moral injuries in post-combat stress is horrible. I mean, I think, you know, to me, the, 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 the hardest thing that, um, that I've actually, I think, think I've ever had to grapple with in my time in the military afterwards was, um, was, was seeing friends commit suicide after, after the war, after they got out and it just hit me like a, just like a gut punch in a sense of, it dawned on me the, the first time I lost a friend, a, a, a buddy to suicide that, for some people, the war just never ends, um, and it just keeps going on. And it doesn't matter whether the, they go home or the conflict wraps up. And that's um, that's hard. And so, and so, you want to find ways to protect people from that. At the same time, I think there are reasons to think that you don't want to we don't want to move to an era that's totally you know, totally dehumanized what's happening. I think that's a very important point that John's making there too. 
as far as the human process and human thought process because the fact is no matter how much you remove humans from the actual offensive procedure you still get offense you still get humans on the other side of the right. measure right. so like you can't you can't really because that's what it is to essentially win a war right it's like hey we try to kill more of you than you kill of us in a sense um, you know, obviously that's not the whole entire goal, but that's part of it. So humans being taken out on the individual side that not only, you know, takes a physical toll, it takes a mental toll on, on the country that's being attacked and the country that's attacking. So when you can kind of remove the thought process, the human individual side of the thought process on the offensive side, it doesn't change what happens on the defensive side. So I can only, I, I mean, I can only say that I think that could have increasing, an increasingly negative effects on the human psychology, yeah. on the defensive procedure, and being killed by robots and being taken out. It doesn't feel like a very natural process. Now, whether that's you know something we get used to down the line and it becomes more of a more of a cultural understanding, there's still something intrinsically inside of us you know, that I think could very you know be affected even more traumatically by that impact. Than being by than being killed by each other, you know, where there's this kind of system of honor code. Even if you're killed in a devastating way by another human being, it's still okay. At the end of the day, still, you know, we met at dawn and we shot it out. You win, I lose. Whereas with you know these kind of autonomous procedures, now you're taking away that fact. You know, you're 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 turning it into robot, you know, or machine versus human. And I think like that could have some you know, very uh, large and diverse uh, psychological effects. Well, I'm so glad you pointed out that, that humans are still on the receiving end of the technology because sometimes I hear people talk about sort of these, these visions of bloodless wars of robots fighting robots, and it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. I spent a lot of time looking at robotics and autonomy and swarming and artificial intelligence, and, I mean, the essence of, of war is inflicting violence on some other group you know, to achieve some kind of kind of aims, and I don't. Um, I think war is always going to involve violence on on humans. Um, if nothing else, that's the only way that wars will end. Um, right. I think that the you know, to me, it's interesting when I started working on this issue about you know probably almost about ten years ago now. Um, at first, I actually sort of was very dismissive of some of these ethical arguments as sort of issues of taste, you know, oh, kind of ethical, schmethical, um, leave it to the philosophers. And as I've, as I've just learned and listened more and grown over the years on this topic, I find the ethical issues to actually be some of the most interesting and challenging ones, because it's one of these things where there are often just, there's just no clear right and wrong answers. Right. Right. And I, I think, um, you know, kind of going back to Grossman, the, the unkilling book, I think if, it was a while ago since I've read it, but if I could remember correctly, I think he also touched on uh, some of the things that were done to dehumanize the enemy as far as how you talk about them. So, you know, you don't refer to them as other people or, you know, you don't acknowledge that that's someone's brother, or that's someone's son, someone's father, something like that. You know, you just come up with a nickname for them, you know, like... um in Iraq, you know, they might have referred to some of the guys they were fighting as hajis or, you know, something like that. And and just small things like that are a part of the process that separates um, you from the enemy on a human level and in a way makes it easier to kill them, you know? Yeah. 
So I think that's, you know, there's, there's interesting legal issues, there's interesting ethical issues. You know, the other subset of things that I think are just really fascinating are these issues that involve um, strategic stability. So basically the interaction of this technology between nations. And I'll give a, an analogy or explain this issue by, by analogy. We've seen now stock trading move to a domain um, of automation, of machine-to-machine interactions where humans will program these trading bots, but then it's, it's actually bots doing all of the trading. And, and they're doing so at speeds that are just too fast for humans to react. Um, the high-frequency trading you know, happening in milliseconds. And we have also seen some unexpected outcomes, some interactions among the bots that lead to things like flash crashes or people finding ways to spoof these bots and manipulate their behaviors. Um, and, and so in the financial space, what's happened is that regulators have installed circuit breakers to take stocks offline if the trading price moves too quickly in a certain amount of time. So you got to give a little bit of a timeout. It hasn't really stopped the problem of flash crashes. It just sort of mitigates it. In fact, um, flash crashes continue to happen on small scales and continue to trip circuit breakers. Uh, there was one day a couple of years ago where a thousand circuit breakers were tripped across multiple financial markets. But extrapolating this to, to warfare, to a similar domain where you have competitive environment, people aren't going to share their algorithms, right? I'm not going to share with you what my rule set is for my machine. Um, people are trying to one-up the other person, and there's a huge advantage in speed. The concern is that you get something similar, a, a flash war, if you will, where you get interactions among these automated systems. It could be physical, could be perhaps even more likely in cyberspace, where they're interacting at machine speed, and then they start, you know, get some kind of escalatory dynamic, and then you get some kind of unfortunate outcome, maybe in a crisis, maybe in a conflict, where they begin to escalate. Not because the robots are turning on humans, they're just following their programming, but the way that they interact is such that they begin to spiral out of control. Um, and that's a, another concern that, that, that some people have talked about, I talk about quite a bit in the book, I actually think it's a, it's a pretty major concern. Um, and again, there are, not, there are not easy ways to kind of resolve that, um, but it's gotten less attention in some of the public conversations and even the international discussions on autonomous weapons so far. You know, Paul, I think you're, you know, you're making some incredibly incredible points here uh, about the whole um, autonomous versus human um, type of environment. But, you know, one of the, th- the bigger points I think you made just a minute ago w- in regards to social media, I-, I actually received my master's in emerging media and communication. So I studied social media networks and kind of the impact of those. But I think the more you grow to understand a technology, the more it can you know, the more that your fear grows in a lot of ways because you're <laughs> yeah, right. fully capable of. I mean, and very often my friends will say to me, well, dude, you have your master's in social media, so you must love it, huh? And I'm like, not really, man. I think the more I learn about it, the more I don't like it. So um, for me, like that that point you made on social media and, you know, in, in humans kind of being removed from the scene, you know, it kind of comes down to those base desires, like intrinsically among human, you know, whether we're, you know, good or bad intrinsically and, you know, and the removal of those spaces. So I can effectively step, step back and not be as seemingly responsible for my comment or what I said. And it goes the same way with weaponry, right? Like if I'm not responsible technically 
for what that weapon does, who cares if I drop a bomb on a square block and kill 10,000 people? What does it matter? Because I wasn't responsible for it. I can't be punished for it. So those, the, that becomes a very interesting dynamic in warfare where a country can step back and not have to take responsibility and, you know, and really not face reciprocity in a lot of ways. Say, well, we didn't know we were going to do that to you. We have no idea. That wasn't us. We didn't do that. Yeah. But it still impacts us. Like yeah, I think it, it's, it's, it's it's kind of like ahead. a gray area, kind of like um, right. I think um, uh, slightly different, but when you look at uh, a couple of years ago, there was an incident in Iraq with uh, at the time what was a company known as Blackwater, and it kind of brought up the the topic and the issue of U.S. troops in Iraq are you know they fall under there's certain rules that they have to follow, and if they don't, they can be prosecuted. Then the issue with the contractors, that there were so many contractors there at the time, is that they technically didn't work for the United States government. So technically, they didn't fall under the rules of war. So technically, if something happens, you know, nobody's responsible. And and then it became a big issue. And I think that Blackwater case beca- kind of became like a landmark for how they were going to move forward in prosecuting potential war crimes as they involve contractors and not uh, soldiers under the United States government. Well, that's a great point, John, because remember that whole that kind of stemmed off of the the need to not to not be responsible. Right. Like, you know, the whole thoughts of having contractors over there in the first place is kind of like, well, we have to be able to take the gloves off. Yeah. And obviously, you know, kind of our PC culture is not allowing that because war is ugly and it's not always politically correct. In fact, war isn't politically correct. Killing a human being isn't politically correct. Right. So like. The, the, it was obviously kind of probably stemmed from a positive want or need, desire, um, for the ability to be able to win the war effectively and do it in the best possible way. But through that, it created some, you know, outside issues because obviously these guys, you know, without that governance um, kind of took things into their own hands. And, and that's never going to lead to positive um, results, you know, whether it be in warfare or, you know, maintaining peace. Um, it was just kind of, it's kind of interesting to me that that happened because, you know, it all stemmed from, all right, well, we don't want governance in these areas. Okay, that's understood. But then you give it to this, you know, culture and kind of in a way, I guess, Paul, you know, you make them autonomous, you know, yeah. because, it, you yep. know, they can't really be governed. So you send them to war and they do what they do. And then you come back and realize, oh, my gosh, like we just created a disaster. Yeah, there are similarities if you delegate, you know, authority to some agent, whether it's a person or a private company or a machine, and you give up some element of control. Um, and that is, you know, pluses and minuses. Yes. Right. I do want to say, I do want to give, cause the book, I tried very hard in the book to be balanced and to show a variety of perspectives. I do want to, I guess, make the case for these weapons, right? Because it's out there and people make this. And the basic case is, is the following that, um, you know, humans are not perfect either. And, and humans screw up, they make mistakes, and humans intentionally do things. Right? Humans commit war crimes. And, and what if machines could do better? Um, and I think a good example of this is in driving, where you know, we're building self-driving cars, we're putting them on the roads, they're going to get better. And there's no question there'll come a point in time when they are better than humans, and we would be better off and would save lives to move to all automation. We're not there yet, but, but it's coming. I mean, humans are freaking terrible drivers. I mean, we have like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like, 
And like, and the fatality rate in driving is astronomical. It's just one that we've always known, and so we accept it. Right? We do, we kill thirty thousand people a year on American highways. Like, that's like a nine eleven every month. Right. Right. Do you know what I mean? But but we just don't. That's like the way it's always been. I mean, I'm pretty sure our grandkids will be like, "You guys used to drive cars by hand." They'd be like, "Yeah." <laughs> did, did people die? And you're like, "Well, yeah, like all the time." Yeah, like it's. They're like, well, how did you do that? Like, we didn't know any better. That's the way it was back then. You know, right. like, like, your grandparents tell you about stuff. So, but I think I think there's a case for for these weapons in war, and and it goes like you know we could use that same technology, and. We could be able to sense on the battlefield things, um, and maybe we could do it more precise and more reliably than humans, and we could avoid civilians and avoid civilian harm. And there are certainly some places where we could do that today for some types of decisions. Um, we have been able to build machines using machine learning uh, techniques that can beat humans at object detection, at object classification, at some benchmark tests. So could we build a sensor that goes on a, on a weapon that could detail more reliably and accurately than a human whether a person is holding a rifle in their hands or a rake? Mm. Yes. I mean, the answer to that is probably right. yes. We could actually do that, and we could do it like with multiple different kinds of sensors that identify in different ways. Um, and, and, and so the challenge is in these broader contextual things. Like just because someone's holding a rifle doesn't make them a combatant. Right, right. Right. I mean, it, it could be a friendly, they could be like a, you know, they could be like a farmer protecting their property or something. And we'd up in this mountains of Afghanistan, we'd run all these woodcutters all the time. We'd be up in the middle of nowhere chopping wood and they were all armed to the gills. Apparently like it's a really brutal, I mean, being a woodcutter, I guess, and these mountains, I mean, I guess there's no law, so you got to be armed and protect yourself from other woodcutter gangs. I don't really understand it, but, um, <laughs> but they were all armed and they weren't like, they weren't Taliban. They were just local. They were just local dudes, like chop wood. Um, and you know and that so, makes me so. You know, no, Paul. Right? I was just gonna say that made me think. You know, you were talking about the cars and the and the issues of you know now now we're having these self driving cars being developed. And man, um, you know, just recently there's cases Uber. You know, because I've been in Tempe quite a bit because I have family out there, but um, Tempe, Arizona, well, self driving Ubers. You know, killed one of their one of the killed a customer or, yeah. or somebody that was outside of the car. But, you know, it's an interesting, it's right. So everybody's response is obviously like, Oh, you know, burn all the self-driving cars, you know, get rid of them. Um, but in all reality, the, the percentage chance of that happening is, is minimal. Even now when we just develop that kind of technology. So I think it takes like, I am very much a proponent in, in that area because I think it definitely lessens it definitely lessens the chances of anyone being killed or harmed having self-driving cars. And it also the issues you have with breaking those types of technologies into a culture that is already understand that already is one way, you know, so like we drive, right? And then humans drive. And then all of a sudden bringing um, you know, self-driven cars in, then you're dealing with human error. And possibly, you know, possible autonomous, you know, error. So until you smooth those edges out and you realize the possibilities and, and you know, autonomous fully becomes autonomous, you don't realize the benefits of what's happening there. So the people's reaction was to burn all the cars, get rid of them, you know, in that kind of context. But they don't understand is, of course, there's a smoothing over process or, you know, you have to 
you have to, you know, make these cars more autonomous, make them better understanding. They have to learn from those processes. So, it, but, but in turn, it's actually a much more effective way to, you know, in transportation and much easier and, and much less of a chance of being hurt or, or killed, really. Yeah. And so I want to, I mean, I want to, that argument is out there too for autonomous weapons and I want to give credence to it. I think, um, you know, my own view, having, having looked at, at this and the uses of autonomy in different settings is that, um, mach- there are some things machines are good at, particularly, um, things that, you know, are repeatable actions. Um, they're good at speed. They're good at precision. There are some things that humans are better at. Humans are better at understanding the context of what's happening, they're better at applying judgment, they're better at weighing competing values. Um, and so where the, I'll just put my cards at the table. I'll just tell you the conclusion of the book. I mean, where I end up is that, and this is, you're actually hearing this out of a lot of the, the defense department recently, is that the optimal model is what some people refer to as a centaur model, like the you know half human, half horse uh, mythical creature, that something that combines humans and machines together, hmm. um, using a, creating a joint cognitive system that involves both human and machine decision-making um, to try to leverage the advantages of both. It's not to say there aren't pitfalls in that. You have to do it well. If you do it poorly, you can actually end up in suboptimal outcomes where you just have actually, it's worse than either independently. Um, but that if you do it the right way, that that is likely to get the best outcome um, sort of trying to leverage advantages of both. So, so just kind of like for certain processes, have the artificial intelligence do it and then, you know, have the, the final decision being made by a human basically kind of thing or – yeah, so what I what I do in the book is I break down three roles that humans play in um, weapons systems today. So one is as what I what I call an essential operator of the weapon system. Without a human doing something, you can't function it. So this is this is like a human in a car today. Without a, without the person in the car, like the car doesn't work. Okay, doesn't go anywhere. Another role that a human can play sometimes in in, in systems is um, as a failsafe. So this is basically what pilots are doing today in commercial airliners. Right. You don't actually need the pilot to fly the plane. Like you could fly automated, take off like gate to gate, You're fully automated. That's that's technologically doable with um with with high end airliners. But the human is there ultimately as a failsafe because there may be situations where the human has to take over. And then the third role is um is the human as like the 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 for human judgment is the decision maker to weigh like value based things that there might be situations where there's a situation where you're like, wow, like how do I weigh these things? And there may not be a clear rule set as the human has to, you know, determine what's the right, the morally right action to take. Um, and so I think in the latter two, there's going to be more places where we automate the essential action of the, of the system of the machine, including in weapon systems. Um, look, people, people could build smart rifles that can, you know, uh, actually decide like when to launch the bullet, right? Person pulls the trigger and then when the crosshairs align, boom, the rifle fires. Um, there's lots of places where we want to use that automation, but we probably still want to keep humans involved as a fail safe in case the system screws up, person could step in. Um, and, and as a sort of a, a decision maker on moral or ethical issues where they might involve judgment, you want humans to say like, is this a good idea to do this? Um, I think you're still going to need humans to do that as well. Right. And I, I think, um, and, and not, not much has been said about this publicly. I mean, there's some stuff that's out there, you know, um, but like regarding like the exoskeleton program and, um, 
you know, having like operators wearing these suits that allow them to kind of carry more weight, uh, you know, run a little faster, jump higher, that kind of thing. Um, I, that's probably a good example of combining like technology with a, with a human. Um, that's, that's different from, you know, something flying overhead, launching missiles and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely um, um, one example that's very visceral, right? Because you got this person wrapped up in this suit. Um, we actually have a, I'm glad you mentioned, we have a project underway at the Center for New American Security called Super Soldiers, where we're, it's not limited actually just to the Army. We're just, it's just a catchier title. Um, but it um, rolls off the tongue a little easier than like super service members or something. Right, right. Um, where we, where we look at a bunch of new uh, technologies like exoskeletons, like human enhancement technologies that could improve the capability of the individual dismounted troop. Um, and in particular, weight being, of course, a critical problem. Um, we're just we're literally crushing dismounted troops with the weight that they're carrying with people ending up with musculoskeletal injuries and it and it slows them down. And it really it really detracts majorly from um from combat effectiveness and, and ultimately from survivability. I mean, there's a point where you got all this armor on you, but you can't move anywhere. Well, that's right. not very survivable either. Uh, and I think anybody who's who's put on all this junk and trying to walk around uh, in the real world knows that. Um, and so one of the things we look at today is exoskeletons. And, um, the, you know, a full-up exoskeleton suit is going to be hard. There are some things that people are doing in the near term with soft exosuits. Um where there's some really cool progress being made. They're not weight-bearing. They basically work like, like muscles and tendons um, mm. to help you move, but they don't actually carry the weight. So you think about like an, a hard exoskeleton is like a skeletal, a mu- whole musculoskeletal system and right. actually carries the weight for you. And these soft exosuits are more just like soft tissue um, to help you move. That's real. That can help um, people maybe like ease mobility and ease use by you know, reasonable fraction, maybe five to 10%. Um, and they can use some pretty low power consumption, which is the key limitation. The hard exoscutes, the technology is coming along, um, not just in the military, but also in the in industry, because there's industrial applications too for people lifting heavy boxes or doing machinery yeah. work or something. Um, the big limitation is power consumption. You know, in, in a factory, you can plug it into a, a hardwired power outlet, or maybe you can swap out a battery pack every couple hours, in a military environment, uh, right now, you know, very quickly you're going to run out of juice, and and maybe like in you know one to two hours you might get battery life. Obviously, you want something that can not last for much much longer than that, even for short duration missions like a high value target raid. Like two hours is not enough. Um, and and there are ways to increase that by going off of um, like an internal combustion engine. That runs on gas, like a think of basically like a weed whacker engine on your back, but obviously not quiet. Uh, that that has some noise discipline problems. It's not very stealthy. Um, uh, to imagine you know dragging around a, a weed whacker or lawnmower engine everywhere, yeah. and those things are not currently designed. I mean, like that's like that's that's kind of crazy. They're not designed really with a lot of uh, muffling in place. One of the things we look at in this report that will come out later in the year is the idea of like some kind of hybrid. Um, gas electric power solution where you might have like a, a hybrid power system where you can go into stealth mode that runs on batteries to be quiet while you're infiltrating towards a target for maybe you know 90 minutes or something and then you're gonna have to kick into to the gas power thing to once but maybe by then you've made contact it's a, it's still got a lot of limited functionality and a lot of limitations 
But it also gets to this point about how we think about technology because SOCOM, bless their hearts, right? They, they, you know, the solution to guys getting shot in the fatal funnel is we're going to put you in this Iron Man suit. Okay, that kind of makes sense. But like, dude, why am I just sending a drone? Like, why are you sending a quadcopter with a flashbang or a hand grenade? Uh, right. Why is the first person going into the room a person? It should be a robot taking the bullets. Let the robot catch the bullets for you. Um, and they're working on that too. There's great companies doing really interesting things. I interview um, and, and talk about some, some technology from Shield AI, which is doing work for the military, doing really cool things on quadcopters and indoor autonomous navigation. Um, yeah, I've, I've seen some, something like that. Like I saw a video that like – like doing like kind of CQB stuff and they send like a drone in first kind of thing. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I got a chance to see some of these experiments in person and it's cool. And it's a little bit creepy to be honest with you to watch these drones, like totally autonomously navigate indoors because like you'll see, and they, they have, um, LIDAR sensors on them where it shoots these like little kind of laser range finders to scan the room. And so you'll see it comes up on a doorway and kind of hovers for a minute as it's scanning the outside of the room and then it realizes, okay, there's a new room and it goes into the room. And it's funny to watch it because even though I like talk about this, I can't help but anthropomorphize these things. And so watching it and I'm thinking like, oh, the drone waits and then it goes into the room. And the first thought that comes to my mind is like, oh, it's curious. It wants to go see what's in there. Um, <laughs> it's just like totally insane, but, but it is really neat stuff. And I think it'll have, you know, that technology is really near term. Um, it's coming out to the field quickly and could have an incredibly transformative effect on how we think about, uh, CQB and, and, um, and urban combat and that our whole model for putting guys in a stack and, and clearing a room could move to ones where like the robots just clear a whole building in a swarm of drones, totally autonomously. And then they, they, they scan people, they send back a, a list of, um, using facial recognition and biometric data, everybody in the building. Um, images of all of the weapons, where everyone's located, who's armed. And then, um, you know, frankly, like people are already armed and they don't surrender. They're like, all right, now you send them with a grenade. Um, and by the time the humans walk in, rooms, you know, buildings been cleared. Uh, and that's, you know, I, I, I would love to see the kind of stuff out there to, to start saving people's lives and, and, you know, taking some of our people out of harm's way. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's so many, you know, that last bit about identifying people and stuff like that. I mean, there's so many incidents where uh, guys were killed, you know, going into buildings and, you know, they didn't know who was in there or the building was rigged to explode. You know, the second they, they open the door, the whole building goes up, you know, so that that stuff could really have a a quick and, and big impact on the kind of wars that we're fighting today. Um, so, yeah, all, all this stuff is extremely interesting. Paul, you know, I can't wait to read your book. Uh, the The name of the book is Army of None. So, uh, you know, anybody listening, you really want to dive into this even further, you can get your hands on a copy of Paul's book. Paul, the book is available where, like, everywhere books are sold? or Everywhere books are sold. Uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, in person, online. Um, you can check out uh, my website paulshare.com s-c-h-a-r-r-e but frankly if you just look for the book online army of none autonomous weapons and the future of war uh, it'll pop up it's um currently a seller on amazon in a lot of these a lot of these categories like military uh, categories so um, nice. yeah check it out uh, please check it out are, are you on social media as well paul or no 
Yep, yep. Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter at uh, at Paul Shari. Awesome. So again, Paul, th- you know, thank you for coming on and talking about this. This is a really interesting topic. Um, you know, something that's important as it's going to change the way things are done moving forward. And uh, you know, thank you for your service as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. And um, and let me say to the listeners, uh, if if you do go buy the book and you read it, um, let me know what you think. Hit me up on social media. Um, drop drop me an email. The best part for me about this this stage of things, the book is out there, is that people are finally getting a chance to read it, and I get feedback from people telling me what they think, and I love it. Um, I hope I hope I actually really loved working on this project and researching and writing it, and so I hope that people enjoy reading it as much as I enjoyed writing it. Well, thanks for having me on the yeah, show. Paul, that's, that's really awesome. And, uh, I really look forward to it, uh, to reading it. And, uh, I know we all say it, but, uh, you know, from one army brother to another, thank, thank you for your service. No, thank you. Thanks so much. And thanks for having me on the show. <laughs>